My reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 30, verse 22 to 25. This is God's word. Let's listen carefully. And then the Lord said to Moses, Take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is, 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hen of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil. A fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. So I'm tasked with preaching on those five ingredients this morning. The title in my Bible says anointing oil. And what we read just now is the sacred some say holy anointing oil. But there are five ingredients that encompass the anointing oil. And so I want to speak on the anointed life this morning. What is the anointed life? I've written down a number of points and I'm just going to read through those and then I'm going to get on with the ingredients that are told about in this passage. The anointing, it empowers you and motivates you to act. It advances and pushes you forward. It causes you to become a better man or woman in God. It raises your worship to God. It causes influence on people. They will see the favor of God on your life. It attracts resources and destiny helpers to you. It will sharpen your discernment. It will help you overcome battles. It is burden-removing burden and is the yoke or the power to break the yoke. It helps you function supernaturally. So that's what anointing is. So I want to take the last of those ingredients because it's the biggest content of those ingredients and it says a hen of olive oil. What is a hen? A hen probably is an equivalent of about 3.7 liters of olive oil. And along with that is mixed into these other spices. But the olive oil represents the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is symbolized as the oil. Yes, the Holy Spirit is also symbolized as fire. It's also symbolized as the dove and as the river of God. But this morning, the Holy Spirit is the oil. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell on the New Testament church, today is literally the birthday of the Christian church. Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. 
So the Passover was 50 days away. But it was in Acts chapter 2 and verse 33, uh, and the, the, the passage in the scripture says that Jesus will pour forth his spirit. When John the Baptist was speaking about Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse 16, he said, I will baptize you with water. But there is one more powerful than I, whose tongues I'm not, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. After the resurrection and before his ascension into heaven, Jesus reminded his disciples that they are to expect the Holy Spirit. You see, it's a very interesting thing here because Jesus said, you know, you've watched me, you've seen me, you've participated, you've seen me teach the crowds, you've seen me heal people, you've seen me raise the dead, you've seen me deliver demons from people's lives, but that's not good enough. There, there, there has to be an empowerment. You've watched me, you've seen me for three years, but now I'm saying to you, you need to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was on the day of Pentecost that they received the power of the Holy Spirit. Andrew Murray says, the greatest need of the church and the thing which above all others believers ought to seek for with one mind and with one heart is to be filled with the Spirit of God. It wasn't only for the apostles. It wasn't only for those in the apostolic age. It's for all those who have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is an imperative. Be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 20, the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. But in power. And I think that if there's anything that the Father wants to give to us, it's the gift, capital G, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We see in Luke chapter 11, verse 11 to 13, if your son asks for a fish, you won't give him a snake. If you ask for an egg, you won't give him a scorpion. You being evil, know how to give, give good gifts to your children. Now here comes the incredible part. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? The Father longs to give us the Holy Spirit. And I want to say to you as we move forward, as we try to rebuild this congregation, we've planted out two congregations this past year. I want us to say to, to the Lord, pour out your Spirit on us, Lord. May this place be filled with such suspense and awe Remember on the day of Pentecost, the disciples said, and they were awe, in awe of what was going on on the day of Pentecost. You know, we come to the service, and we do stuff for God. We do stuff for one another. We, we, we worship Him, and we listen to His Word. But how about having one of His services where He does something for us? He is a supernatural God, and He has always intervened in human affairs down through the years. And I think that we have robbed God of His supernatural being. 
and made him into a finite and a natural being. But he is the God of the Bible. He is a supernatural God. He is infinite. And we need to have God do something for us. We fit we, we, we allow him to fit nicely into our little box of predetermined ideas and our theology. And there the, he stays. And we, we pray, God, don't get out of that box. <laughs> you see, in the Bible, uh, Paul talks about in First Timothy. He says, there is a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And we need to break out of that. You know, I, 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 thought, I thought about this, you know, often like visiting and, you know, this is, this is, this is what very much happens in, in church. So you go visiting and you sit down with a lovely, wealthy lady and she, because the pastor is visiting, she's got her best cutlery set out, crockery set. And she's got the best, best china. And she, she pretends that she's, she's poured tea or hot water into this uh, kettle. And, and now in this beautiful, beautiful kettle, she pours out uh, something. But it's, there's nothing there. And she pretends to give you this cup. And she, you, you take it and you think it's empty. And she's got a cup too and she pretends to drink. And you think, well, I guess I better pretend to drink as well. And you pretend to drink. And you, you put it down and you think, what's going on here? You know, I just want some tea. And you finish. And like all good pastors, you say a prayer and you leave. But then you go to another friend. And they welcome you into their kitchen. And they say, come, come. I'll put the kettle on. And you see that the boiling water is taking place. And they pour and they make a beautiful tea. And the aroma is there. And they mix it with a little bit of sugar and a little bit of uh, milk. Uh, 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 the kettle is a little old. Uh, the, the teapot is a bit, bit beaten. And uh, you know, you think the cup that you pick up is worn and there's a little chip on it. But the tea that you drink is refreshing and it's good. And that's how a church service should be, where you come and you are refreshed and you're blessed by the, 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 the meeting. And that's what is, needs to take place. The, the, the first aspect of the anointing of God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit may come in great abundance. The second ingredient is that of myrrh. That was the first uh, ingredient that was listed here. It is a fragrance that comes from the trunk of a comophora tree that, are, that is grown in Arabia. It's produced in forms of tears that are a little bit like gum. And alcohol is used to remove all the impurities. And the steam passes through the gum and it melts that thing and it turns into a flowing oil, and it becomes a beautiful perfume. But this myrrh is a picture of meekness and submission. Meekness and submission to God's will. Not weakness, meekness. You see, meekness has a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing. It's, it's a strength that has been harnessed. And I have two pictures about that. It's, it's one is, is like a, a raging river. And as it comes down the canyons, it, 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 it suddenly is, is funneled and it's channeled and it's focused 
by the riverbanks and by the dam wall. It's incredibly powerful. And it's, and it's funneled into that area so that it can turn into hydroelectricity. Or is another picture of a, a horse, this powerful, strong, magnificent stallion. But the bit and the reins and the saddle and the stirrups are all controlling this powerful, powerful stallion. And that's what meekness is in actual fact. In Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, Moses, the Bible tells us, is the meekest man who ever lived. But he's one of the most dynamic and strongest leaders in the Bible. By nature, he was hot-tempered. You remember at one point, he saw a slave driver who wasn't probably beating an Israeli, who wasn't doing what he should be doing, just motivating, but he was beating an Israeli, and Moses killed him and hid his body. He was a hot-tempered dude. But why did he become so meek? He became so meek because he, he grew up in the first 40 years of his life, he grew up in Pharaoh's palace, uh, you know, satin and silk, eating his uh, chocolate mousse and whatever else that went along with being in the palace. I don't know, chocolate mousse wasn't around then. <laughs> Shame. So. But he, he, up until the age of 40, he was just, Brought up in this very, and then he had to run for his life. And for the next 40 years, he ended up tending his, somebody else's sheep. He was out in the desert waiting, waiting for God's voice, waiting for, for and, and slowly but surely, God was able to put steam through his, his being, put steam through every fiber and taught him to get rid of that stubbornness and begin to teach him some kind of meekness. And then one day he saw a burning bush in the distance and he came close because this bush was not being consumed. And as he came closer, he heard God say, you're walking on holy ground. And God watched him as he took off his sandals as a sign of respect and reverence to God. And then he listened for God's voice. He had heard many voices in the past, and he would have heard many voices in the future. But he listened to God's voice, and God spoke to him and challenged him and called him to come. He said, I want you to go to Pharaoh. Moses, I'm going to give you faith. The, 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 thing, the thing that you're going to fear most, I'm going to give you faith for. You need to go to Pharaoh, and you need to tell Pharaoh that I am sent me. And he responded to that. And his job was to be in submission and to be meek regarding that. And often God reminded him, Moses, you can be at the foot of the mountain with the multitude. You can be halfway up the mountain with the 70. Or you can be at the top with me and hear my voice. And Moses decided to do that. Mary said in John chapter 2 and verse 5, he said, she said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's meekness. That's submission. Whatever he says to you, do it. And Moses was that kind of leader. He was a man who was incredibly meek. It is strength under control. 
And that's one of the aspects of anointing that we need to have in our lives. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, Walk worthy of your calling for all lowliness, with all lowliness and meekness, forbearing one another in love. Meekness, it's submission to God and mildness towards people. That's what's required in the anointing. Charles Spurgeon tells a story. One of his students got up to preach. And he got up to preach and he was just full of himself. He's an arrogant young man. He's going to give the word of God now. And he got up into the pulpit and he preached. And the congregation are not stupid. They can sense his spirit with which he's speaking. They didn't respond. There was no connection. And he finished his sermon and he got down from the pulpit. And he was downcrested, downhearted. He was sad. He went to Spurgeon afterwards and he said, what was wrong? And this is what Spurgeon said to him. If you had gone up the way you had come down, you would have come down the way you went up. Just that meekness, knowing that we are serving a supernatural God and that he is in charge. Cinnamon, the next ingredient. The second ingredient for the anointed life. This came from a tree that was about 10 to 13 meters tall. And the remarkable thing about this was that it grew straight up. It had no curves. It had no bends. They used to take the leaves and the fruit of this tree and they used to squeeze it and crush it and make a fragrant oil out of it. They made candles for the king of Simon and it was a beautiful fragrance. And it represents uprightness. It represents how you stand. It's not self-righteousness. It's not about sitting or walking on spiritual stilts and, and looking down at some of the unspiritual plebs that are down below. It's just the opposite uh, you know, of, 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 of spiritual arrogance. But it's standing. It's standing for the truth of God. It's an interesting thing that in the Old Testament, a man with a crooked back was always disqualified as being a, a, to be a priest in the uh, temple because God wanted to symbolize something. He said, I want, I want the priests to be men who stand straight up and to represent something. There was lots of symbolism uh, there. And if you want to attract the anointing into your life, you have to stand for the truth and you have to stand for righteousness. You see, in this world, there's incredible darkness. And we need to bring the light. There's hatred. And we need to bring love. There's incredible sadness and we need to bring joy. There's incredible bondage, but we need to bring uh, liberation. There's incredible death and we need to bring life. And the early believers, after the day of Pentecost, when they went out into all the world, the early believers went out into this world that was tired, that was troubled, that was tied up, that was tripped up, and they turned the world upside down. They knew that they had to stand up for the truth. And in the spirit and in the power of God, they knew that they had to go and speak the mighty power of God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 
12 and verse 9, abhor what is evil and hold fast to that which is good. I read a, an article this little while, a few days ago. It was by Dan Rayland, and it was a, a, the leader's creed. And he talks about Romans chapter 12, verse 9 to 21. This is what leaders should be doing. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good was one of them. It's so important for us to know what is evil. We, we, we need to discern what's evil in this world. And we need to know God's word so that we have the courage to choose what to do and how to do it. You've heard me tell the story of an old Cherokee chief sitting with his grandson. And he was teaching his grandson about the battle that takes place within every single human being. And it's a battle of two wolves. The one wolf is evil. It's filled with anger and envy and jealousy and sorrow and regret and greed and arrogance and self-pity and guilt and resentment and inferiority and lies and false pride and superiority and ego. And the other wolf is good there is joy and peace and love and hope and serenity and humility and kindness and benevolence and empathy and generosity and truth and compassion in that and the little grandson with his big eyes looked up at granddad and said but which wolf wins and granddad said the one that you feed the most what are you feeding what are you feeding in your life right now you need to stand up for the truth. We need to know God's word, and we need to stand up in times of even opposition. I, I, I see the opposition that took place in Paul and Silas when they were in uh, Philippi in Acts chapter 17. What happened was that they were jailed. They, they, the crowd didn't want them. They, they took them. They put them in the deepest, darkest part of the prison in jail, in the dungeon, and they put them in stocks. So they were, were clamped and they weren't able to move. And they started singing and God caused an earthquake and they got out. And they started a little church. But you know, their, their attitude as they went from Philippi to Thessalonica, the, the, the attitude was, oh, well, that was a bit of a bad experience. I'm gonna, you know, how many of us have a bad experience at church? How many of us, oh, that person offended me. I'm going to stay away from church for a little while. You know, there was such incredible resilience and fortitude within Paul and Silas, they went on. And they kept on going on. I mean, I remember the words of David Livingston. He says, I'm prepared to go anywhere as long as it's forward. And, you know, standing up for that which is right, we have to go forward. The next ingredient is that of calamus which is humility, or sweet cane. Fragrance grew in the swamps, and the head of the reed was filled with oil. But that reed wasn't ready to be picked until the reed with the head bowed down right to the bottom. Then they knew that it was filled with oil. And they were able to harvest and pick that. It speaks of bending low in humility. 
you want to have the anointed life, you have to walk in humility. In John chapter 13 and verse 5, Jesus shows a level of humility that the world has never seen. One by one, those big burly fishermen, smelly, taking their dirty feet into the room, grinding the dirt into the floor, one by one. Jesus took a basin and a towel, filled it with water, and washed their feet. The magnificence of that is amazing. These were the same hands that created the universe, but these hands were washing the feet of his disciples. You see, Jesus was answering their question, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And he was showing humility is a huge, huge strength. If you want the anointing in your life, you need to have humility. Walk in humility. Bend low with humility. In Romans 12, verse 16, do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. What does conceited mean? Wise in your own thinking. A big head. A snob. Don't be like that. Walk in humility. Peter tells us, and out of all the guys in the Bible, Peter had his issues with pride and humility. But after many years, he writes his letter. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, God opposes the proud and favors the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, that at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. I was ordained in 1981, December, December the 15th. It's coming up to 40 years now. I was a Presbyterian minister. Went over to the States, was there for a year. My first year of ministry, I was the young assistant at Durbanville Presby Church. And we had a pastor's conference. It was at Morgan's Bay, which is just north of East London. I was in the United States in 1982, and when I came back, my dad, who was a Presbyterian minister at that General Assembly at the end of that year, seceded, he broke away from the Presbyterian Church. I remained. But he broke away and joined the New Covenant Ministries International. But the talk was, what is Richard going to do? So anyway, I'm sitting having breakfast on the second day, in actual fact it was lunch, having lunch, and we had as a guest speaker Archbishop Bill Burnett. He was very in favor of the charismatic renewal, and he was the Archbishop of Cape Town. Tutu, I think, took over from him two years later. Uh, he was the Archbishop of, of, of Cape Town, and he was our speaker. He was a tall, very tall, thin man, had 
very long sideburns, you know, in the 70s and 80s, sideburns was a thing, eh? <laughs> very tall man, very, very dynamic speaker, wonderful spiritual man. And at, at lunch, I got my lunch, I went and I sat down. I don't know how many guys really wanted to be with me. I was just the young uh, Appy, uh, whose father had become a rebel. <laughs> and I'm sitting there by myself, and I look up, and Archbishop Bill Burnett has got his food, and he's walking towards me. I'm thinking, oh, I hope Archie is not coming to sit next to me. And as sure as anything, he came and he sat next to me. He says, how, how are you, Richard? He knew my name. Out of 220, I'm probably the youngest and the most inferior. <laughs> he said, been thinking and praying for you. Well, at that point, just that interaction, I got so emotional. I thought, oh, trying to cut my food and trying to look down. I'm like gulping, you know. Am I gulping the food or am I gulping my, 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 my emotion right now? He said, Heard that your dad moved away. I've just been praying for you that you hear God in the next season in your life. Well, I was finished. Gulped my food, left some of it, went to the room, and I just sobbed. This giant of a man speaking to me, a little pipsqueak, just spoke volumes into my life. I saw his humility, his graciousness, and it had such an incredible impact on me. F.B. Mayer said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one on top of the other, and the taller and the bigger you grew, it would be easier to reach those gifts. But I've come to know and understand that God's gifts are on shelves, one beneath the other. The lower you stoop, the more you get. That's where God's gifts are. You want the anointing? You have to be humble. And then the last one, Cassia, C-A-S-S-I-A. -S -S there were many types of Cassia, and it was used for a number of different things. But one of the aspects that it was used for, only one, was like a laxative. It was from the tropical climates, and it was produced and it was used as senna. And it was for cleansing. Your parents used to give you castor oil. Do you remember? It was like a depth charge. You know the depth charges? During the war, it sunk to a different level or a certain level. And then there was an explosion. Two years ago. Metal and I went to have colonoscopies. When you get to your 60s, it's a deal, eh? I mean, a couple of days before, 
you eat a certain diet. Day before, you take opening medicine. You don't go for a walk in the afternoon. <laughs> don't. <laughs> it won't turn out well for you if you do. <laughs> but this was opening. What does that represent? It represents an inner cleansing. David tells us in Psalm 137 and verse 24, God search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. You know, we need an inner cleansing. You know, we're, we're letting things affect us from day to day. But we need to come to that place at the foot of the cross. Lord, sometimes, sometimes I feel that I'm moving away from the cross. I'm allowing certain things to take place in, our, in, in, in my life. And we need to be cleansed inwardly. Our temples need to be cleansed. We need to be uh, our dining room of our appetites, our workshop of our talents, our playroom of our pleasures and the lounge of our entertainments. Malachi said in, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Some ladies were having a prayer meeting together and they said, what does this mean? He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. So one of them suggested, I'm going to go to uh, somebody who works with silver. So she found somebody, she went to his place, and he, was a, he had a fire going, and he was about to put some silver in and to refine some silver. So she, he said, come and watch me. So she didn't let on what it was about. So he came and he put some silver pieces in there, and he put it into the fire right at the very heat of the fire, where it was the strongest and the hottest. And he watched the fire melt, and she watched it as well. And he, he stood there and he watched it for a, for, a, for a while. And then he pulled it out and he scraped some of the impurities off. He says, you have to watch all the time because sometimes if it's just a little bit more, it damages the, the silver. And then she said to him, when do you know that it's refined and you can take the silver out? And this is what she said, when I can see my reflection." Inner cleansing. If you want the anointing of God, you need to come to that place of repentance. Peter, when he stood up on the day of Pentecost and he preached the word of God, and they were pricked to their hearts. They were stabbed. And they said, what, what must we do? And the first thing he said, you need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to make a 180 degree turn. And you need to move in the other direction. Confess the sins that the Holy Spirit is bringing to your remembrance. So that there may be cleansing and forgiveness. And you'll come to understand what the Bible talks about in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, if we truly confess our sins, I think... It'll make all the world of difference. We don't come in that, into that place of deep repentance. And so often we take all that stuff, some of the stuff that we haven't repented, and we go into our Christian lives, and we need so much counseling, sometimes even deliverance from stuff, because we haven't repented properly right from the very beginning. In a cleansing.
some of us realize that there's sin and wrongs and unrighteousness that have gotten a grip on our lives. And we need to stay at the cross. We need to keep coming back to the cross over and over again. Cleanse me, Lord. Wash me clean. That I might know your goodness and your love. I want to finish off now. In Psalm 92, in verse 10, David says, I've been anointed with fresh oil. I've been anointed with fresh oil. There's nothing worse than stale oil because stale oil attracts the flies. There's a stench attached to it. And you know who's the lord of the flies? It's Beelzebub, whatever his name is. <laughs> Beelzebub. <laughs> He's the lord of the flies. And we need to have a fresh anointing. Are you wanting to have a fresh anointing today of the Spirit? I'm crying out, David said. I'm crying out for a fresh anointing of fresh oil. Yesterday's oil is not good enough. We try to deal with so much in our Christian lives and so much of life with yesterday's anointing and with yesterday's oil, but we need to have a fresh anointing each and every day. If you want to live the anointed life, meekness, uprightness, humility, inner cleansing, and a fresh dose of the Holy Spirit is required.